Sorry. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Aspiring Snobs Book Club, where you and I read a book. Usually, this if you look at the our feed, our podcast feed, it's usually movies, right? Oh, uh, wrong. Nice. You're wrong there. You're misled. <laughs> You've been misled. This is actually about books, and uh, the books that, namely, we haven't read and make excuses for what we haven't read. Um, the latest one on this year's, uh, or number one on the bestseller nope. charts right now, the one that set social media aflame, is uh, by an auteur named Zack Snyder. And uh, his book's mm-hmm. called Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League. Now, this is a re-release um, put out by the, the publisher again because um, it, for some reason it was mm-hmm. originally released in 2017 and, and didn't get didn't get the, the, the premature of his, <laughs> of his uh, artistic <laughs> blessing. So uh, now it's been complete. Now it's officially finished. And... Um, Yep, and it's like it's like Charles Dickens, you know, Christmas Carol. It used to be episodic. Now it's all together in one in one package. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it, it is beautiful, John. But I I didn't finish it, and I I'm guessing you didn't either. Um, now let's run through, let's run through the litany of excuses we have. Why? <laughs> I mean, the biggest one is we fell asleep. <laughs> so boring. <laughs> So boring. No, I, I'd say you have a legitimate excuse because you've suffered a trauma. You, you've been you've been bullied before by Zack Snyder and mm. his filmography, uh, namely <laughs> Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice, a movie Justice, which yes. I know you, you felt you felt personally violated by. Um, in terms of, uh, I mean, and devoting brain space, watching, devoting time, devoting energy to to watching it, and and just felt your your whole your whole personage just completely. Completely ruined by that movie, right? I mean, yeah, I kind of, yeah. Like watching that movie, as I've described, is like watching something with like a a, a fifty pound yoke over your neck. It's just mm-hmm. so oppressive. And for Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League, it's it's the same feeling. However, because it's so elongated, because there's like ten seconds added to every scene that doesn't need to be there, it, it like it feels like the burden is is a little bit lighter. It, you know, it's like it's a little bit easier to to mend to to, to withhold. That's so. what. I- um, that's from the only first 30 minutes that we were able to watch before okay. we turned it off. So now, I, I did not fall asleep, um, although it was getting late and we were tempted to. But I was actually engaged in what I was watching on screen. But you're absolutely right. It's clear that they used every part of the buffalo they had, um, starting with the opening mm-hmm. sequence um, where uh, Superman is emitting F1 sounds all across the universe. That's... <laughs> And as we know, sound travels through the vacuum of space yeah. just perfectly. Yeah. So, to yes. come across like F1 sounds, it was... I don't know if that was intentional. Um, but I'll, I'll get back to that later. Because after that is the opening credits, wherein, and I think this is the same with the original theatrical cut that we got, is Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne is visiting Iceland, and he's traversing this uh, this glacier and these mountains on horseback and, and having to drag his horse through the mud and everything to get to this village where people are just standing there, um, like seemingly waiting for his his, his arrival. Uh, that, that's that's a baffling choice. Not a lot of logical choice in this movie, but more dramatic ones. You know, it's just... 
yeah, not a lot of not a lot of humans in this in this picture. They're all kind of like little chess pieces. They're you know like everyone complains that it's like oh everything feels like an action figure you know mashed together. It's like literally with Zack Snyder like these aren't humans. no these are literally action figures. No, John, they're not. And they're they're not humans. They're meta humans, cool. John. <laughs> oh, of course, yes. But they're meant to stand around. They're meant to make cool poses and say gruff things and then you know move on. That's that's all they need to do. And same thing with all the extras too. They just stand around, wait for the heroes to say something, and then when the heroes leave, they sing a sad song and then we're reminded of Lois Lane who is also sad mm-hmm. hey Superman's dead guys did you know that's sad yes but I know it's sad because the movie told me <laughs> yes but the f- first 30 minutes feel like establishing shot the movie because <laughs> yes the, granted you can explain away his long trek through Iceland because the opening credits are happening um, but I couldn't I couldn't explain it away when there's a heist in London or sorry it's not a heist it's a group of reactionary terrorists <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm thinking like hey you've got you've had four years or whatever to kind of fix up and finish the don't you think you could have written something else other than like hey we're reactionary terrorists out to do evil everybody (laughs) well that's the weird thing and i think this is going to be an interesting case study and experiment on how movies are done in the future because now we're not going to go to theaters anymore now they're going to get delivered to our house and here's the thing we're going to get iteration after iteration because part of also what they did was they used every part of the buffalo and then they used alternate takes like they used it, like everything is the same just slightly better like it gave they you know we had more time to brainstorm we had more time to like you know let it bake guys <laughs> so <laughs> so i'm looking forward to the day where we get you know 50 iterations of like captain america like and which one's the good one? Oh boy the discourse is going to be so much fun which one's the right one which one's the best one for you to watch you know and again because it's like now just a content delivery trough that's just you know poured out in front of us like you know slop for the pigs like enjoy yes. piggies so, eat up yum so yum i'll i'll uh, you're right. I'm not anticipating this. I I don't know if you were being sarcastic when you said you actually are looking forward to that discourse. I'm not. I will say one thing. Like when I mentioned the super, the film opens with Superman screaming, and it sounds like F1 cars like racing by or something mm-hmm. like that. I thought at the very least that's that's an artistic choice. That's something that Warner Brothers has seeded to because that's completely different than the original cut that went out four years ago. And it's clear maybe that one was the decision of a let's say let's say a commercial interest or a producer is like let's change that let's let's make it let's let's make it more accessible to viewers you know doing a, a rescue on a cell phone footage i think was the original cut no it was just, it was like post uh, rescue post, so oh, it's just okay. like everyone's mulling around and that's when the kids approach them with their cell phones out like hey how's it going superman yeah you're so cool <laughs> <laughs> Granted, that's the safe choice or whatever, but I like the boldness, and I like that Warner Brothers basically ceded to this artistic choice of, like, no, he's going to scream, and it's going to reverberate and activate mother boxes. <laughs> mother boxes, folks. <laughs> it's going to it's gonna activate mother boxes. So I'm glad that they ceded that ground. However, my other main objection is, uh, you're right, this is just gruel. This is just reheated crap, basically. Um mm-hmm. And it's taken advantage. And again, the only, the only like, yeah, the only like fa- fine praise, because it has been like, you know, it's critics like it, and only like only because they're comparing it to the Happy Meal toys that was the original 2017 Justice mm-hmm. League. Like, w- absent of that, would this movie have been lauded? Would it be critically praised? Absolutely yeah. not. So, like, there's no way to objectively look at this movie, unfortunately. No, and I also object to. Zack Snyder often evokes like gods and 
and things and and people are justifying this mass popular entertainment of like no actually it's good and worthy of being examined and extolled because it's like uh greek mythology and the classics right right folks isn't it and it's the the thing is it's it's not (laughs) because that that was that was originally conceived as a way of explaining the world in in place of actual science. That's that's the reason why those stories like propagated. The other thing is like Greek culture back in the day also had other culture. They also had like Sophocles writing plays and you know difficult difficult material like Agamemnon like having sex with his mom. That's something new and interesting and challenging and twisted. That none of that is happening today. Uh, excuse me, Greg. This has the Joker in it, and who's more twisted than the Joker? Okay. All right. right, he sits on a ledge and says we live in a society. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even though it's the post-apocalypse. Yeah. So it, was it meant to be ironic? I don't know. Nothing matters yes. anymore. <laughs> We're well past the point of parody. I think that's why I hate I hate our modern world. It's just like everything feels like a joke, but it's not. Yeah. But it is, but it's also not. Like, uh, you're, you, you get to engage as much as you want to, you know, unironically or not. I just hate it. I hate it. I hate everything. Please, burn it to the yes. ground. No, this... this Although the movie itself isn't bad, everything surrounding it sucks, and I hate it. And they took advantage of a a pretty, a pretty massive hole in the marketplace to now, and a very sweaty PR team that has been working overtime. I think Disney's PR team is way more effective in making WandaVision seem like something other than, I don't know, also, also reheated crap. Um, but... Um, it, it's clear that, yeah, I, I hate this too, and I wish that more than one new film would come out and kind of restore um, my interest in, let's say, art and culture or something to think about and discuss. Not not this, because this, this ain't it, Chief. This, this is not, oh. yeah. <laughs> oh, too bad. Yeah. I'm sorry, Greg. Did you make it to the scene where Aquaman gets introduced? Or Yes, Okay. Yes. yes. That yeah. I felt was very... I believe that that was at the 24-minute mark. Again, I was, like, cha- passing the time. I was like, where are we? Because, like, again, now when you have chapters to skip ahead, obviously you're going to use that feature. Yes. Like, come on, you can't just give me that and not expect me yeah. to use it. I thought that scene was particularly instructive because he, he's he's not uh, rescuing the guy on the boat. A fisherman is out in a stormy sea and is going to capsize and drown if somebody doesn't come rescue him. Hey, it's it's Aquaman's here. But he doesn't do it out of altruism. He does it out of obligation. <laughs> Throws him into the bar and says, like, it's on him. And you idiots didn't listen to me about the storm or whatever. You lowly creatures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, that's part of the fun of Aquaman is that, you know, he, he begrudgingly is a hero. He's like Han Solo. Yeah. It's like, oh, can't you just pay me? You know, it's the, he's cool, okay? Aquaman, I, I've, I've been on the record for this. Aquaman is an amazing movie and belongs in the Criterion Collection. It is a, that is a work of art, okay? And it's the same thing. They have actually, they have the same scene uh, pretty much play out in, a, in, a, in the Aquaman movie. Or, you know, after he saves some people, he goes to a bar, he, you know, meets up with his dad, they share a pint, and it's really cool. And then, you know, these big burly bikers guys show up behind him they're like hey you that aqua guy we've been hearing about and he's like yeah can we get like a picture you're like so cool <laughs> well yeah so he's a person with a, a family and sounds like he he yep. devotes some adoration to his fan that unlike this movie where again he's mm-hmm. he's he's the superior being and well that's why they added the scene with superman and the cell phone to like bring him down to earth oh look kids like him you know and then people buy the whole f- instead of just putting him like fucking christ-like above the earth like this is a god do you get it like <laughs> i don't know i don't like again, it again Zack snyder has no chill no chill <laughs> guys come on I want a movie that's nothing but chill vibes. Okay. Well, how about 
John, how about this? Why don't we revisit mm -hmm. an actual piece of art? Oh. Yeah, um, one you, depending on the viewer, may also struggle to stay awake through. Um, <laughs> but it's art nonetheless, and it does have chill vibes. Um, it's despite some anxiety about what the kind of the world's going on, uh, particularly in early 1960s Italy. John, this is a big one. This is one we had in our original list of movies to revisit, of classics to revisit. And uh, we're not getting to it until now. And uh, I'll explain why in a moment. But first, come on, we're talking about Il Maestro. The big boy, Federico Fellini, and his masterpiece, his magnum opus, Eight and a Half. favorite numbers from my grinder profile yeah. so eight and a half. <laughs> i was i was gonna say, um speaking of uh psychology uh, around a sexual nature i thought the eight and a half referred to the number of women uh he flashes back and our, our main character kind of focuses on throughout the story um no it's actually refers to this being federico fellini's eight eighth movie or sorry, seventh movie plus two like short films or something. That's what the, that's yeah. what the title refers to. But mm -hmm. and again, you could also consider this like half a movie because it, it doesn't really feel th thought out, which is kind of the point. <laughs> it's just kind of like, hey, and we'll just shoot this, and that's fine. Like it's very, it feels very improvised. It feels very much like uh, like a Terrence Malick movie. It's like we'll find it. Yes. Let's just get our camera out here. Let's get the actors in front, and we'll find it, guys. Let's yes. find it. Well, and because of that rough nature, it's very whimsical. So mm -hmm. it starts off very famously, um, our director, we don't know he's a director yet, but he's in a traffic jam, and then his car starts filling up with steam and all the other, like... And everyone's just staring yes. at him. There's no, like, you know, it's it's very dreamlike. It looks, like, very fake as well. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, oh, I thought production values in the 60s were a little bit better than this with the matte painting, but I think it was intentionally kind of meant to be dreamlike and, and kind of uh, uh, artificial because yeah. eventually he, like, breaks free of the car and he starts to float away and then he gets dragged back down by a kite flyer or something <laughs> like that. It's all it's all very interesting, very bizarre. Yeah, so one of the most powerful, I think, openings in, in cinema history, at least one of the most memorable ones... Um, and what follows is also like I, I think um, has its has its influence with other directors. Like this is a personal favorite of David Fincher and um, a lot of other directors. Roger Ebert also adored Federico Fellini's movies and Martin Scorsese. I want to go back to um, a few weeks ago at the time of this recording. Martin Scorsese made headlines because he claimed that uh, cinema and movies were being devalued because they were lumped along with. Um, like short series and videos and viral videos alongside content with with streaming services. Yeah. Now, what everybody missed probably is that the, that's only like the first two paragraphs. The rest of it is a tribute to Federico Fellini and basically going through his career and um, his eventual friendship with mm -hmm. Scorsese before he died in like the mid-1970s. Um, Fellini, not Scorsese. Scorsese is still with us, thankfully. Um, <laughs> so... 
yeah, but getting into Scorsese kind of extols the movie by explaining that it is a rough draft. It is about the creative process. And I think from here, though, like things take a turn for the worst because and and like whether you like it or not, like, yes, this this has the um, this gets extolled by a lot of like creative people and luminaries in, in cinema. But for me, this was my second attempt to watch eight and a half. Not not mm. full viewing attempt, because I tried to watch, watch it back in college and I fell asleep and I tried to watch it again this time. And I fell asleep, but then I restarted it again and watched it from beginning to end. And I just, I'm, it's just like like watching kids playing uh, across the yard or something like that. It's just it's just something I can't get into. Um, it's it's as if this is, there's this barrier, and Scorsese in that essay uses this word like like plastic or like there's this kind of like like the sound doesn't sync up and that's because they never recorded audio on set and like yeah i like and i was confused by that too i wasn't sure if that was a deliberate choice or is just you know like again italian movies are famously made on the cheap yeah. so i was like oh did they just not record with sound and they thought oh we'll just fix it later <laughs> and and but it does lend itself again to that like dreamlike quality the fact that none of the dialogue really kind of like fits and then it changes languages throughout like sometimes they speak english sometimes they speak french it doesn't really matter and then the guy from cabaret shows up and then ah but <laughs> Oh, I was wondering um, if I recognize that guy. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's not that actor. No, but, it's, I mean, it's it, pretty yeah, much it's the pretty same close. Probably from Cabaret. Bob yeah. Fosse was probably inspired by it, but yeah, yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> I kind of dug it. I, for some reason, and again, like, I'm kind of surprised by that because, like you, I don't go in for, like, I'm not a particular fan of, like, David Lynch. I'm not a fan of movies that um, operate on dream logic yeah. and that are kind of a little too surrealistic and a little too kind of, like, effervescent and, and, and like that. Um, however, there's movie, I do have a favorable comparison to this movie, which, you know, I know is going to, I have, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get, canceled for this but i do really really love birdman uh-huh. or the unexpected virtue of ignorance and i think part of the reason why i love that movie is again like you know the surreality of it you're not quite sure like what's diegetic what's non-diegetic what's really happening yeah. and i think what helps with both those movies which hurts it and helps it is this idea that it is grounded in we're making a production you're making a movie this has to be a product this has to be something that you can sell to people and they will enjoy it so it's like if you're if you're grounding your story in that and then intentionally you're you're kind of like fighting against that by making your movie not make sense to kind of like challenge the audience like i kind of appreciate that tension i kind of appreciate that back and forth where it's like you're not going to get it guys and that's fine even though we both understand we're supposed to be making a product that you're supposed to absorb and you're supposed to appreciate that you paid good money to see it doesn't you know we're we're still going to do whatever the hell we want and you're still going to have to be you're still going to be forced to play in this space 
even though like the whole like meta notion that it's like oh i'm a director it, it does come off as like very pretentious and a little too navel gazy to be like oh we're artists we're making art here it's like no you're monkeys you're monkeys dancing on a stage for us now dance monkeys <laughs> You're right. It's something that you have to kind of give yourself over to. I find what helped on my third viewing of it, third attempt to view it, was um, actually not reading the subtitles. Because a lot of it is Mm. wall-to-wall talking, and it was tough to keep up with the amount of language in addition to the visual imagery that... (laughs) And arguably not saying much. No. (laughs) It's a lot of like dialogue, but it's not like it's moving the story forward. (laughs) No, and literally that's exactly what our main character, this director says at one point. He's like, I gotta say something, but I've got nothing to say. I think he says it about Uh halfway through the movie, and that's that's kind of the most distilled representation of the creative block that the the story itself is telling. Um, I think where, where it kind of loses me is a bit is it's not just a flight of fancy, but I wish they were a little bit more connected. So... Our character goes to a spa, and he has uh, a few conversations with a, his writer, the writer of the movie. And um, mm-hmm. when I say con- they're not really conversations, they're more writers, the writer's monologue. And, and they're, they're sort of based in, in philosophical subjects that, I don't know, don't really, like, um, don't really connect to the actual film production itself. And then from there, like, we meet another character, and, oh, this was the other big influence I was going to say, um, we meet his mistress and another character, another woman who catches his eye. She's dancing with another guy. And there's a shot that's cribbed right from that famous sequence in Pulp Fiction that Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. cribbed um, for Pulp Fiction where they're dancing um, in this big courtyard, this big marble courtyard. Um, so again, another like kind of point of influence of this movie. But um, yeah, yeah, I didn't kind of connect. Like The movie he's working on is a big budget sci-fi pr- uh, movie. Yeah, and the writer's talking about all these philosophical concepts, and then he like flashes back to um, when he was a schoolboy. Well, this I did have to understand because he also has to meet with the magistrate because it's it's Italy and nothing gets <laughs> gets by without the approval of the church. And um, there yeah. you go. And he remembers his first like uh, I guess sexual encounter. Like we'll call it that, even though he, he does, he's only a young boy and doesn't necessarily lose loses virginity, but he does encounter um, a woman uh, who's a prostitute who lives out in this old like turret on the on the seaside. And he's, he's kind of like bullied into it by the other kids. Yeah. The other kids are like kind of egging him on. It's like go touch her, dude. Go talk to her. Yeah. You know, like and I think they're the ones who actually pay her to you know like do the deed if quote unquote if anything really happened you know it's represented by dancing and so yeah and Mm. so that sequence stood out to me and i think because it's like a a whole flashback it has like a clear beginning middle and end like yeah like there's the 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 setup of like these kids egging him on guido guido go dance with her like and but then he gets caught and punished for it and gets carried through the the uh, the schoolyard and the shadows over his like <laughs> over his uh, cool school uniform. I wish we had school uniforms that had that little cap and the long long flowing coat. I mean that be that. But then he has to wear the dunce hat. Yeah. He looks like such a fool. I know that too. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it all kind of coheres like as a little sequence itself. Um, unfortunately, the rest of the movie doesn't really.
like there's also it feels very purposeful like again this this flashback serves a purpose because it's demonstrating that it's like oh this guy was kind of set up to have weird relationships with women mm -hmm. because of how he potentially lost his virginity you know he thinks of kind of like there's this potential potentiality that it's like he thinks of women as kind of merely transactional and again like all the women in his life they're all like uh, his wife to his mistress to the actresses like you know do i get a movie in your part do i get this yeah. do I, like it's all about you know transactions so it's like there feels like there's connective tissue with that scene and i think that's also why it sticks out as for the rest you really have to like kind of squint and see and really you know have the little the little mathematics fly across the screen as you're talking you know to figure out what could the scene possibly mean yeah unfortunately but. well i think that's that was my problem is that i didn't give like and I've tried to trust me again. I've, this is my third time. I've tried to give myself over to Fellini, and I, and I mm -hmm. just can't. Um, again, it, it, when it does work, it's when the, in these kind of locked off sequences. Because the other one that really works for me is um, this happens later in the movie. Um, he's had all these flashbacks and encounters with, like as you said, his wife, his mistress, this uh, prostitute from his childhood. And then he, he envisions a sequence where they all live together and basically or yes. like serve at his beck and, and call. They're like his concubine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at this harem, basically. And and it's it's interesting when one comes in, I think it's like a stripper he met from many years earlier, and like she she rebels against him and all the women like go go along with it and kinda unite <laughs> unite against him. And and so that's the other mm -hmm. like kind of sequence that stuck out to me. Um, because it does feel like lockdown, like it has a clear beginning, clear complication, clear finale, and then we're back to this, I guess, reality, um, which which doesn't feel like reality most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead, but it's like, what did you think of the ending, though? Because the ending also, like, again, like it kind of feels like it's like hurried, it's rushed, and it's like when it first kind of sets up, it's like kind of meant to feel like it's like oh you know he like late he overslept you need to like get here you need to go here and then obviously as it continues and he's rushing by we realize that this is still probably in a dream sequence because you know there's like people setting up like a dinner plate a dinner setting around his set and even though the set was supposed to be struck but they're putting it back up and now there's a carnival and now there's all these reporters asking questions you know it's i i kind of i don't know for some reason this movie vibed for me for some reason i thought it i, I thought it kind of worked because um yeah, like it, like if it weren't for that kind of like playful kind of like grounding where you're not really sure what's real and what's not, but you know that there's a difference. And yeah. so it's like part of the reason why I don't like David Lynch, like I was talking about earlier, is because it's like you never really know. And there is no kind of like because we never kind of get reality, we never get someone waking up. There is never that questioning. It's like we're always in the dream. That's you know we're operating on dream logic. You know never question. You know just like fine, just go with it. <laughs> Whereas like here we're allowed to kind of have that dialogue between like you know viewer and director and kind of try to figure out what the heck's going on. You know it's it's that mythos. It's you know whatever we can't explain that's art. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, and you're right in that the movie benefits from a strong opening in which we have this incredible imagery of the guy like floating above the seaside and his producers are well what we learn are his producers like trying to tether him back to earth and it's kind of the same here they're brushing him to this like big news conference like hey the 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 movie's gonna it's happening anyway it doesn't matter like how creatively blocked you are it's still happening you're gonna rush to this news conference the, the press is gonna demand that you speak in several languages one of them is gonna ask like all these philosophical questions um I, it just did make me curious of like whether press back in the day did like um um <laughs> mr scorsese do you believe that god is dead <laughs> um <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> no, and yeah, that's I, the other interesting thing is like, the, like when you're an artist, they expect you to have answers. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I think it's also fun, like, again, playing with the whole idea that this is a, uh, you know, like a, a consumer product. He's making this ridiculous, like, sci-fi film. Mm-hmm. Like, it should be like, you know, sci-fi has the, the possibility to, you know, talk about the human experience, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, or it could be complete schlock, like Star Wars. Yeah. You know, it could be like empty nothingness. It could be that Happy Meal toy, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, like, I think... That was a good choice. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the goal is to escape, and this is an escape in a way, because mm-hmm. then what we see following this, and I, I wasn't sure, this is my interpretation of the scene, is um, he's trying to get away from all this pressure, both from his producers, the writer, his family, and the press. And so he crawls under the table, and it looks like he's got a gun, and it looks like he's going to shoot himself, or at least does. That's ah, what yes. it appears like. And then we cut to, like, he's standing upright, he's A-OK, and then he's like, no, the film's over. Like, you know, tear it all down, it's fine. <laughs> Like, and so, like, yeah, it's, you're right, it's, it's a juxtaposition of, like, it's, it's finding, like, where in reality we are, like, is, is this a career suicide, is this a, like, some, some other, what, is this some other kind of interpretation, like, where he is, like, like, meeting the end, and, like, I like the little denouement where it feels like everybody's coming back together, I mean, if, if you haven't written a, a, real climax i guess the way to do it is like just have just have characters come back together um for a big musical number that's the way to end a movie um uh, scientists have determined is either dance or musical um that's or music number that's how you that's how you end a movie proper um so basically you have every character come and you actually see him direct and that's why like that's what connected me say as a western american viewer who wants to see like characters grow and change and get from point a to point b here like we mm-hmm. see him kind of corral every element of his life from the women that he's flashed back to to his wife and his mistress who are having some conflict all the producers he gets them he corrals them to do this like um next to some like carnival music they all join hands and walk around on this stage around the set that's now being dismantled and it felt like a you know, regardless of if he didn't find like a proper story um, in the middle of filming, like what uh, if he woke up on Monday and it's like, what are we going to shoot today? Uh, I don't know, like um, it's just some dancing in the in the spa area, or um, <laughs> just uh, you and your wife in bed. Like, oh, she's come back suddenly, and your mistress is in another hotel. Like, what do you do? Um, whether whether he didn't find like a complete story in the middle, like I think he does kind of terminate it well in terms of like having the character kind of like have some agency in his life again despite this creative block tu saresti capace di piantare tutto e ricominciare la vita da capo di scegliere una cosa una cosa sola e di essere fedele a quella riuscire a farla diventare la ragione della tua vita una cosa che raccolga tutto che diventi tutto proprio perché la tua fedeltà che la fa diventare infinita saresti capace ecco ascolta se io ti dicessi Claudia E tu? Saresti capace? No, questo tipo no, non è capace. Questo vuole prendere tutto, arraffare tutto, non sa rinunciare a niente. Cambia strada ogni giorno perché ha paura di perdere quella giusta e sta morendo come dissanguato. E così finisce il film? No, comincia così. Poi incontra la ragazza della fonte, è una di quelle ragazze che danno l'acqua per guarire. È bellissima. Giovane e antica. Bambina e già donna, autentica, solare. 
non c'è dubbio che sia lei la sua salvezza. And I like we've also noted on this podcast many a time before, if you end your movie correctly, it makes up for a lot. Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, it'll, 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 you know, destroy the whole reputation if you don't end it correctly. So. Yes. Or create the whole reputation. So, yeah. <laughs> a strong ending does go a long way. And I, I wish it could have gone further in terms of my taste for Fellini, and particularly Eight and a Half. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, like... Uh, loads of asterisks on the end of this one like yes highly influential highly important in cinema history <laughs> however like as a movie consumer as some as something to be enjoyed let's say like as something to sit down and actually like i don't know like take from it like kind of absorb and and maybe influence your own uh creative or professional life that i'm not sure about that i can't i can't speak to But is it better than nine? That's what everyone wants to know. Rob Marshall's masterpiece is Magnum Opus, nine. I know it's tough to compete against director Rob Marshall. Um. (laughs) I mean, we have Daniel Day-Lewis. Does he even sing? We don't know. We'll never find out. Well, I I wish I could have finished uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League so I can compare eight and a half to that, too. There you go. Powerful creative visions, you know, just bursting with creativity and just demanding attention and... I love to I love to picture uh, Zack Snyder showing up on set and just being like, "All right, we'll find it. Okay, you go, you stand there, you talk in bed, uh, you know, Wonder Woman's in bed, and you know she's like mad at Superman. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll find it. We'll find it. Four hundred million dollars down the drain. <laughs> well, h- hang on, it wasn't that much. I don't think. Well, if they did seventy million to do the freaking Zack Snyder version, so it's like, yeah. how much do you think it cost at the end of the day? How much do you think? This well, they said, yeah, okay. So they they claimed an additional seventy million dollars to do the Zack Snyder cut. The original mm-hmm. Justice League, I believe, was budgeted at two hundred fifty million dollars. So that's about three hundred million dollars, and it depends because they shot. It may not be the most expensive movie in the world, but when you talk also talk about like merchandising and things like that, like mm-hmm. I I don't know I I presume they got their money back. Although kids are buying more toys from probably the the Cartoon Network shows, am I right? I mean, have they done one? I, in a while? I assume I they did a like a short one I think where it's like it was like eleven minute shorts okay. that were kind of like more comical, and then they also have that Teen Titans Go thing, which is also like meant to be like meta and you know crazy. So I think uh, that's probably selling like gangbusters, but I don't think yeah they're doing like proper toy sales because part of the reason why also like Young Justice never survived and then they had to resurrect it was because like it wasn't selling toys. Those okay. shows they never do, yeah that ultimately comes to like why was Batman Beyond you know canceled because it wasn't selling enough toys. <laughs> why was Young Justice canceled? It wasn't selling enough toys. You know it's like that's that's ultimately the the reason behind those kind of cancellations and why those shows exist. Yeah. So and again credit to Disney's PR department, but when I do go into Target, get and like walk past the kids section what is it except nothing but marvels like avengers tons of black panther like memorabilia and merchandise tons of captain america stuff like you know it's all over the place granted that's just one store in one area of the country or whatever but like you know they're i don't know commercially i guess they're doing their job in terms of like Mm -hmm. getting into stores and getting people to buy it so 
Um, but Unlike Fellini, bringing it back, who didn't do his job, but maybe he did. Maybe he made great art. We exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the purpose here, is what Scorsese said, as I mentioned at the very beginning. But in, in this tribute to Federico Fellini, that basically tried to extol the purposes of art and not just to still cinema down to a, a bottom line or a single number on a ledger. And I believe, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm thankful that's what Fellini got to do and what Warner Brothers sometimes does when they do <laughs> allow directors like Scorsese, like the Wachowski siblings, like Zack Snyder to go hog wild on all their stuff. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for good and for ill. Sometimes ill, but most, I'd say on balance, pretty good for for good, so. Maestro! That's the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put a bow on that discussion, huh? <laughs> yep. All right. Wrap it up nice. Yep. Send it off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, UPS. Yeah. You're the real heroes. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think anybody will discuss... Uh, uh, I don't think anybody will discuss uh, Fellini's eight and a half again, because we, we pretty nope. much solved it. We nailed it. Yep. We're done. Yep. All right. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. Set it in concrete. It's it. good. <laughs> We are the final adjudicators. Aren't we? Right, yes, and that's what I, you know, heavy lays the crown, but you know, we're we're here for it. So, <laughs> but Greg, should we should we give them more? I feel like they're probably even hungrier for Absolutely. more. Absolutely. I mean, the Zack Snyder discussion alone, it's like you know, it's a it's a full course buffet. But you know, unfortunately, I think they want. More. I, I'm looking at the time code here. We're barely we're a little over like 30 minutes in. Like, what are we a Disney Plus show? Come on, let's give them more. <laughs> okay. Well, I know. How about we throw at him? We'll, we'll, we'll give him a little morsel, a little taste of our signature segment we like to call Spotlight. 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 Hey, Salvatore, guess who's here? Mr. Cucolabanza and some real ugly kid. Morsel, John. I'm ready I'm ready to give folks a, a venerable buffet. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. I, I'm going to talk about not once, not twice, not, or sorry, <laughs> not once, not twice, but thrice movies, John. Are you ready? Go for it. Let's hear it. Yeah. All right, so... My wife and I have been watching more... Um, My wife! <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I cut, nailed it. <laughs> we've, we've been watching uh, more movies with a feminist bent. We've been trying to watch movies by and for women explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've got three here that I want to uh, just talk about. One is The Gallant. Like, one is the one I wholeheartedly recommend. Another one's The Goofus, the ones I, I want you to avoid at all costs. And one's uh, in the middle. It's mediocre. We'll call him Greg. Uh, we'll call it Greg. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
So first, the, first the goofus of these feminist texts. Uh, this is the goofus, and this is the movie Bombshell mm. with Nicole Kidman, Charlize Theron, and Margot Robbie. You remember it from a yes. few years ago? Yeah. It's, it was ripped from the headlines. Yeah, yeah, it was it was ripped from the headlines. Now, John, I, I'm going to pitch a movie to you. Um, you remember those people that you didn't get along with in like high school and college, or maybe your workplace, like people you just didn't really like connect with, the ones and, we, and yeah. could be really like, real jerks and a holes. Um, how would you like to see a documentary of what they're up to now? <laughs> <laughs> but you see, Greg, like when you think about these these projects that you have to greenlight, you have to get all the quadrants. So it's like, all right, we can't make an explicitly negative movie about. Fox News. That's half our audience right there. But also, yeah. you know, you want it to be like girl power. How do you do both? <laughs> it's like so, you mentioned that term girl power, and that's that's where we're going off the rails here because this is this is a a, a movie centered on probably the most odious aspect of American life, um, maybe in its history. Who knows? Um, actually, what am I saying? Slavery might have been a little bit worse, but uh, <laughs> just a little, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But it still treats these women like Mick and Kelly, um, who like like as not as saints, I guess. Like they they are like they do bring up the fact that she like tried to claim that um, Jesus and Santa Claus were white and like her controversial opinions. But they also treat her as like serious journalist lady. And oh, I don't want to be the center of attention with with Donald J. Trump, the presidential candidate. Oh no, not me. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> She just hates the spotlight. Oh, it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Gretchen Carlson or like Margot Robbie's character who's supposed to be this like composite but like of 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 its innumerable sins, the one it doesn't actually like portray Fox News for being the pernicious like force in American life which it is. Um th- through Margot Robbie's character, she just said like, "Oh, my parents watch it and I want to impress my parents." And that's it. That's as deep psychologically as you're going to get. And then two, the the girl power angle which I'm incredibly annoyed by because the most facile thing we can do is like scream girl power within this current system that we have. So like, oh, Megan Kelly in this movie uh, is is um, is somehow like a feminist icon because she broke the cycle of like terrible abuse and 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 um, sexual harassment that we saw at this one cable station, Fox News. Um, what has she done with that girl power? Um, she's enriched herself. She's continued her terrible racist rhetoric, yep. um, not just when she was at NBC, but also continuing today on her on her Twitter feed. So, what does it say about the system when we can just use girl power to uh, uplift the worst, most terrible people in it? I think we have to. Um, break the system first all right but no the movie can't address that or whatever so um that's the go- that's the goofus that's the terrible avoid it like a plague like you would megan kelly um just r- run to the other side of the room um or yeah just get it out of here um so now the mediocre one the greg of the group um this one is now out on netflix it was released just a week ago it's called moxie mm. so this one uh we had an interest in because um uh, because they actually filmed it locally. They filmed it at the high school just down the street from us. And um, th- it was great seeing trailers and trailers and trucks um, just lining up, cl- clogging, uh, clogging the streets. Um, <laughs> so that, that part wasn't good. But uh, the movie itself is, is A-OK. It's based on a young adult uh, novel um, about a girl. She's a, she's a mousy little girl. She doesn't stand out in high school. Um, but then another student, a black student, comes in, and she starts to um, uh, kind of... Uh, court controversy by saying like why are we reading the same old books by you know old white men why are we putting up with like the captain of the football team still like um 
kind of giving us unwanted sexual advances and things like that. And so um, how this young uh, white and kind of like sidelined white student wants to address it is with the power of zines. Mm. Um, John, do you, you, can you explain for the audience what a zine is? So a zine is a very cheap, uh, easily kind of replicated magazine. So it's basically like a little, typically it's designed to be, like kind of be recreatable from a, like a simple eight and a half by 11 sheet. They just fold over and you can easily Xerox. So they have a kind of like very punk, very DIY aesthetic typically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so th- that's what she does. She leaves them in the bathroom and in places where people can then pass it around, and it does empower the girls of the school to not put up with those like unwanted sexual advances and like or or having a, a unfair dress code standard. Like the guys are wear, allowed to wear sleeveless shirts, but the women aren't. Um, so so that's all like fine. The problem is it's kind of pitched at after school special or like very didactic like kind of like like everything's set up to say like oh you know the man gets this advantage or like you know it's like literally talking about like the captain of the football team again which obviously isn't like it's the experience in a lot of high schools but like you know like we've seen that eight gazillion times before in in books and tv and movies so like why why are we seeing it again in 2021 and um and even though it has a a a wonderful cast of exceptional actors like um uh, Ike Barinholtz, uh, Amy Poehler, Marsha Gay Harden, uh, Clark Gregg, they, they've all got nothing to do. They all play like the most one-dimensional characters you can think of. Like uh, Amy Poehler plays uh, the star, um, the protagonist's mother. And basically all she does is like, she's a nurse and I don't, used to be like a, a punk girl in the 90s and, and had the original zine that inspires the daughter to basically basically start this movement um even though it's 20 even though it's 2021 and we see all the kids already connect over social media so why why a zine would like change their minds i'm not i'm not 100 percent sure it's but, because kids today on their phones they need something physical they need like a real thing guys come on yeah yeah so but in spite of those like you can nitpick logic or whatever but like it still works on a dramatic level and it, and it ends powerfully because it allows it uh, how the, the movie terminates is like girls come forward about their experiences as a black student or like a survivor of sexual assault. Um, and so that, that's all good. It's just like, you know, when you've got one dimensional characters and, and little things like the, the, the blocking, like they walk unnaturally slow through like things because the camera has to, those things kind of make it move mediocre, but you know what? That's actually a good thing because for women to write direct movies, they should be allowed to be mediocre and like learn and improve and then move on to the next movie. This is why they evoke they invoke the term that I, that I don't really like um, mediocre white man because mm-hmm. they're not just talking about like people being average because most of us are average. That's what the term <laughs> mediocre means. But you know, with our current system, patriarchy, like guys are allowed to like move on and improve and and change things, whereas like like we see a lot of like black people and women like aren't allowed to like screw up or you know make it's like you know yeah, they're not getting presented the all. same opportunities so yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. you get a mediocre so talent so by like like brian singer who somehow <laughs> turned into like hollywood's you know royalty and then had to get canceled <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> um 
So anyway, that's that's the mediocre one. That's the middle. That's the middle child. Mm-hmm. And now and now for the gallant, the the shining star. And that's also on Netflix. Um, I believe it came out last early last year in the pandemic, so it might have like, kind of slid under the radar. But that's unorthodox. Mm, yes. Have you heard of unorthodox? Yes. Uh, I the creator's uh, been doing the rounds. I think I, I I heard an interview with her on the um or not the creator, the original writer that the book is, the book of which the, it's a movie or is it a series? So it's a it's a mini series. It's four episodes of about an hour long. So I think it would come out to, to like a Zack Snyder length movie <laughs> if they were allowed to, <laughs> if they wanted to make it one movie, but they found like the right like uh, uh, cliffhangers to end it on like four episodes or something. Mm. Um, I think we should rate movie lengths based on directors. Like a two hour movie is a Spielberg, and a four hour movie is a Snyder. Got it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. A three hour Scorsese. Um, <laughs> And 90 minutes is a Russo, you know, why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just a clean Russo. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll talk about them later. Yep. Um, those maestros, those, <laughs> those masters of the, of the art form. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, as you, uh, unorthodox is based on a true story. The, um, the, uh, miniseries itself takes on, a, takes kind of a different angle. Um, they, they really kind of develop this. It starts in medias rest. She's trying to escape this very ultra orthodox Jewish community um, that's very repressive towards women. Mm-hmm. But we also flash back when um, she first gets married and she is into the community. Her mother's already left, but she kind of like conflicts with her mother. Like, no, I'm staying within this community. I feel like fulfilled here. Yeah. So we see like an, a woman actually grow and get to like be herself. Granted, this was. This is with the advantage of a three-hour-plus runtime that we can actually see this. Um, but also very able filmmaking to show, like, to cut back and forth between the present day and the past. Um, so that's what makes it exceptional. But it also feels, like, true to life because one angle that they added is that she she loves music. Mm-hmm. And um, so she flees to Berlin to, like, to get away from this ultra-Orthodox community and falls in with the big music academy there. I can't remember its name, but... Um, she like befriends some of the students there at the music academy, and she thinks like, "Oh, maybe I can like sing and do what you guys do." Um, but then the reality sets in like these are all the world's most exceptional musicians, and like, and I, I feel like a lesser one would have made like, "Oh, she's she's extraordinary," and you know would have been like hiding this 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 wonderful talent under the bushel and oppressiveness of this uh, ultra orthodox community. But then, like one friend, like very you know. Difficultly, like, has to explain, like, these kid, like, the students here have been doing this their whole lives. They practice like eight hours a day, and you just aren't good enough or something. You like, you know, and so like, it also like kind of deals with the reality there. Or like, when she does meet her mother in Berlin, like, there's still tension there. They're still they're still not seeing eye to eye, even though she she's followed the same path as her mother. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so again, there's a lot of richness and nuance to it where it still feels real, but also like a, an extraordinary story worth telling. So hmm. um, that's, that's the, that's the best that we've seen um, thus far. Um, again, that's standing high above all the rest of the crap on Netflix, really. <laughs> um, I just, very worthwhile. I don't know why it's like kind of had a resurgence recently. Cause yeah, it came out, I think a few months ago and yeah. only now people are finally like kind of catching up on it. So I'm just kind of surprised. That's all. Yeah, I think um, maybe it was the, su- the success of the Queen's Gambit. I think like people are willing to give like the miniseries more of a chance, mm-hmm. um, particularly it, particularly one centered around women. Or I found the marketing a little like odd because they have this 
this like bold typeface, like unorthodox, <laughs> and it's like struck through, and like it just seemed like it just didn't seem like fun viewing. And granted, like, but granted, it's not a comedy, but you know, it's not it's not like oppressive to watch. It's okay. not it's not Zack Snyder's Batman v Superman. Um, <laughs> it's just very good drama, and so yeah, and which touches on some extraordinary subjects and does it very ably. So. That that one I give an A plus recommend to. All so. right, I still haven't caught up on the Queen's Gambit, so I don't know which one I should start with, but I'll I'll, I'll try to catch up on both. The problem is I've been okay. on a I've been on a big documentary kick, Greg. I don't know about you. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. And it's because uh, John, be careful. You can get addicted real fast. <laughs> All right. Nice. Well, I mean, I was hoping I caught this week with the whole like uh, um um. Uh, the why am I blanking? The a- Academy Award nominations. I caught up on, oh, yeah. on something that's been on my radar for a while. Everyone's been like pr- singing its praises. I finally caught up on my uh, uh, my octopus teacher or my teacher octopus. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called now. Okay. Speaking of, of marketing, scaring the hell out of me, and <laughs> <laughs> that's the making thing. Making me want to like wave it away. Like um, <sighs> like no, that's the okay. That's the thing is that I think this is one of those instances where it's like the hype just kind of ruined it for me because yeah. like the whole tone of the movie makes it feel like and then the big revelation is gonna hit <laughs> because the guy it's the director is the narrator it's all from the director's perspective so just imagine like david attenborough was just like sad and he was depressed it's like talking in like generalities about like how his life is just unfulfilling so he picks up this hobby of like i'm gonna go uh uh water like uh not scuba diving, but just like just swimming in the reef that's near my house. Snorkeling. Yeah, snorkeling. Yes, that's you know he's not doing scuba gear. He's like he and he has he's a, he's a director obviously, so he has a little camera and he goes down. Lower buried entry, no certifications, stuff like that. Exactly. And he um he he goes to the same reef every day, and he eventually starts to kind of befriend an octopus there because the octopus is like smart enough. It it learns its patterns, and he realizes that like the octopus initially like swims away whenever he comes by but then the octopus kind of realizes he's not a threat and they eventually like actually like start touching and like the octopus comes by and like hugs him and it's very like sweet and you know like he uh like as it goes like again like i use the david attenborough thing because then it just basically becomes like a nature documentary it's like look how cool octopuses are they like they camouflage they shoot ink they're so cool and uh you know and then there's the tension the sharks go after it you know and then it's like he loses a limb oh no but then the 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 octopus grows it back yay and i keep waiting for the other shoe to drop i keep waiting like okay what makes this more than just a boilerplate nature documentary Spoiler alert, it doesn't grow into anything more than that. It's just him talking about how cool this octopus is. Oh, th- oh thank God. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> you said you created this bond with this octopus, and it got me thinking of um, some genres of hentai that I um, <laughs> may have looked up in the past. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't go that deep. I okay. mean, obviously, it does the whole, like, you know, um, nature is cruel shtick. Because, you know, yeah. the, the the octopus gets attacked by sharks, like, several times. Maybe, like, again, it's, like, divided into three-act structures. So, like, each act's have to be, like... And then they almost got the octopus, but the octopus got away. Until, like, you know, the end, and then the octopus... Spoiler alert, the octopus doesn't make it to the end, unfortunately. But that's nature. It's cruel. It's sad. But I'm like, haven't we... Like, why is this nominated for an Academy Award? Why are people praising it like it's the greatest thing since sliced bread? I don't get... Like, yeah, it's nice to see a nature documentary where, like, the actual cameraman 
is the person you're hearing from and had a connection with what he's actually filming. That's kind of novel. But other than that, I just didn't (laughs) throw my hands away. (laughs) Okay. Well, John, it's kind of a weird award season. So maybe maybe this didn't have enough documentaries that qualified or something or yeah. Again, Netflix has this whole campaign apparatus that allows their their films to be screened and and in front of voters and allows enables it to be nominated. So, mm. yeah, maybe this this where the overrated aspect comes in. Yeah, but I mean, because you seem to be the ones screaming overrated and saying not not worthy of the of the top five uh, uh, honorifics uh, is bestowed upon the best documentaries of the year for the Academy. Good sir. Well, I mean, um, that's the other weird thing is like. Um, the documentaries I do kind of want to recommend are like um, from HBO and they tend to be, you know, three to four parts. So it's like mm-hmm. they're like HBO is really trying to corner the market on like the, the little documentary um, uh, miniseries. And the one I we recently watched, which is very kind of like fascinating, is Lady and the Dale. Are you familiar with oh, yeah. the Lady and the Dale? <laughs> uh, you, you had to remind me of it because the Dale was one of several like startup cars in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, that were trying to that were trying to solve the problem of the gas prices gas crisis and basically trying to make a more fuel efficient vehicle mm-hmm. um and you know this was like an upstart she was going to take on the big three it was founded by this woman who was like this larger than life figure and they have so much footage of her and she's very very trumpian she's very much like i'm a victim here everyone's out to get me there's a conspiracy against our company you know i'm the great like very randian very like you know pro-business like like mm-hmm. it's it's a shame she ended up in jail before you know reagan came to power because then it, it would have just been like Lord knows what would have happened. But obviously, that's not why this story is fascinating, because the Dale never made it into production. The reason why everyone knows this story is because the titular lady wasn't always a lady or was, you know, not assigned a lady at birth. So as a result, Mm -hmm. you know, and like that's the weird thing about the documentary is that they kind of the creators kind of want to make the main subject a little more nuanced or at least kind of. create a more nuanced kind of narrative because it's like obviously in the 70s the media was not kind to her (laughs) you know it was like uh, a con man who's not always been a man you know a man anymore you know like that was the kind of prevailing narrative and now they're trying to rehabilitate her image and kind of show a little bit more nuance and how brave she was to you know be like proud and transgender at this era when you know like everyone was like you know no no Uh, like now we have a better understanding of it but um yeah, it's but also she's just a really shitty human being as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it's hard to kind of like root for her, but then also have the documentary kind of like lionize her at the same time. So it's 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 kind of a weird kind of like back and forth, and I appreciate the kind of conflicted nature of it. So that's kind of fascinating. I understand. I read you loud and clear. You're anti-trans. Yes. So <laughs> now that now that that's out in the the open, like we're we're perfectly clear there. All right. <laughs> Okay, so there is, I'm going to spoil the, the worst, best slash worst moment of it. Um, Which is? There, so they interview this, um, uh, this uh, like, beat reporter named Dick Carlson. And he's mm-hmm. just like, he's this, like, average schlubby, like, you know, our team number five investigates. And he's kind of the one who, like, breaks the story. And they keep coming yeah. back to him. And he's, like, the only one who still kind of refuses to use her pronouns, like, her proper pronouns. And is very kind of, like, the more they interview him, you kind of realize, oh, yeah, this guy is kind of, like, a bigot, isn't he? Huh. Yeah, like, but again, he's, like, he's nobody. Who cares? 
And as the documentary goes on and they interview him more and more, you get a little bit more of his history. And, you know, he wasn't always a beat reporter. He eventually ended up working for the uh, Reagan administration. He ended up being an ambassador for the, for the Reagan administration. It's like, oh, wow, this guy's a bigger deal than I thought he was. And then, like, they show his kind of, like, again, this rhetoric, how dangerous it is because this guy eventually elevates himself to higher positions. And even his son, Tucker, because he's Tucker Carlson's dad. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. I've, again, I'll I'll give kudos to that guy. Because he also <laughs> had, give, was no. wise enough. Don't give him any credit. <laughs> he was also wise enough to marry into the uh, the Swanson frozen food dynasty. Um, <laughs> a multi-million dollar um, enterprise uh, shoveling crap to America's homes. <laughs> frozen crap. So, no. no. Yep. Yeah. So, this, the like an octopus, the tentacles of this evil <laughs> now stretch into... Both in uh, bigoted anti-trans rhetoric, um, crappy processed foods to Americans, making them dumber and more unhealthy, and finally um, into Fox News, and um, <laughs> where all those odious thoughts get uh, transmitted daily. So. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, another documentary I just want to give a quick recommendation to. You know, in quarantine, it's really hard to remind myself to shower most days. So um, <laughs> that's why I've been watching uh, Alan versus Pharaoh, because I always need a shower after watching that. Oh, oh boy. Yes. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, what wonderful subject matter. Like, I, I just love... Can we just dig into a family's personal um, history and foibles more? I mean... <laughs> People, let's just dish. Let's just let's just continue. It's like, just stick our fingers in the mud on this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like it is very one-sided, which I've heard. Which, but again, like that's Alan's fault. He's the one not participating. They reached out to him, and they have to like use his like audiobook recordings to like get his opinion on things, like his side of the story. Yeah, I've heard the same things about World War Two documentaries. Oh, one-sided. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, but I mean, obviously, like, there's obviously something very, very wrong with Woody Allen. That's putting it lightly. So, um, yeah. And uh, I don't think I can ever watch uh, Manhattan ever again. So, uh, yeah, okay. there we are. All right. Thanks. Thanks for the, the wholehearted recommendation. <laughs> yes. All right. All right. This is not in the plans to give three first, but uh, yeah. Well, you got. Uh, they're getting their money's worth, man. This, yeah, like again, yeah, this is the this is the cut Snyder cut of podcasts. It's gonna be four hours long. <laughs> Just gonna re-adjudicate everything we've watched, you know. Yeah. John, I've got an idea to make it even longer. Let's use every part of this bottle. Oh, oh, um, no, you can't. No, this isn't. No, this isn't right. You can't. John, John, you, you seem a little anxious. Don't worry. Let me calm you down. Uh, no, no, you can't. You can't. You can't do this to me, <laughs> John. Usually, usually we surprise one another. With a, a fun little ga- fun little game, psychological warfare at the end of the at the end of the <laughs> episode. But no, I just want this to be a chill, light, fun, good vibes trivia challenge. Just you know, just cool, fun vibes. Oh, yeah. vibes, fun, all right, yeah. vibes. I love it. Okay, cool. All right, let's, let's yeah. do it. Again, this is this is psychological warfare. This is just fun. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, John, earlier you mentioned it is award season. Uh, the Academy mm-hmm. Award nominations have been announced, and everybody's in a delirium. I mean, if you look at all the ratings from all the recent uh, uh, award shows, it's it's pretty clear that what people want during the pandemic is um, to see rich, successful people hand gold baubles to other rich, successful people. Um, <laughs> of course. And I'm sure it'll be the same. I bet another ratings record um, for the Oscars this year. I bet it's going to happen. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... 
I thought I'd dedicate this week's trivia challenge to uh, around the season's biggest award. Not best documentary, John. I know you mentioned that one. But this is the one that everyone covets. The one that everyone dreams about and practices their acceptance speech in the shower. Um, I'm talking about the Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Cast in a Motion Picture. Or Best Ensemble Cast. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Yes. I love teams. I love teamwork. Let's do a team. Let's go. Yeah. And that's what Justice League and Marvel's The Adventures are all about. <laughs> teamwork. Because, <laughs> guys, at the end of the day, it's about family. Yeah. So this award, granted, it may not be as big, in quotation marks, as Best Picture or Best Actor or whatever. But um, a lot of people, a lot of Oscar prognosticators look at it because it's given out exclusively by actors and actors make up the biggest contingent of Academy voters. So they think mm-hmm. whoever wins like this award has like a, a, a runway to, or an easier path to Best Picture, ultimately. Um, so that's why, that's why people focus on it. Um, and also, I'm going to call it Best Ensemble Cast, even though that's not its official name. Um, but Outstanding Performance by a Cast in a Motion Picture is too much of a mouthful, and I don't want to say it over and over again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so John, are you ready? Yes. All right. Question the first. What's the only film, not in the English language, to win the award for Best Ensemble Cast? Oh, that's got to be Parasite. Correct, Amundo. Again, it won everything else that year. Uh, Palm d'Or, Best Picture. Um, mm-hmm. It probably won a fall Kill- festival as well, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, just just killing it. Yeah. Bong mm-hmm. yep. All right, number two. What's the only other film, not in the English language, to be nominated for Best Ensemble Cast at the SAG Awards? I'm going to go with blue is the warmest color. <laughs> All right. That's your fi- final answer? or Yeah, final answer. Okay. That's a good guess. Also a Palm Door winner. However, that's incorrect. Um, the correct answer is Life is Beautiful, your favorite oh, and mine. Of course. Of course. Yeah. They love the Italians. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Question number three. What's the only comic book adaptation to win an award for Best Ensemble Cast? I'm going to go with Black Panther. Correct again, John. Yes. I just you just mentioned the last the, two winners. It, the the recent ones. I got I get all the recent ones. Everything anything less than three years though, I'm I'm, I'm gonna be completely lost. Okay. Well, I'll give you a hint for the fourth question because what uh my, my next one is what's the only musical to win the award for best ensemble cast? I'm gonna guess Chicago. Correct again, John. John, you're nailing it. <sighs> Absolutely. Oh yeah. All right. Um, of all the films to win this award. Two winners focus on the travails of NASA during the space race in the latter half of the 20th century. So, John, I want you to name one of these two movies. Um, I am going to guess... Uh, if I, if, I'm going to go with either Apollo 13 or uh, The Right Stuff. Well, I'll give you credit because it is Apollo 13. That did, in fact, win okay. Best Ensemble Cast. The other one you're thinking of is Hidden Figures in 2016. Oh, yeah. of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Is the right stuff even a good movie? Uh, I don't know yet. We're going to have to watch it for for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know, huh? <laughs> but it, like that's the thing. Is it even considered like a classic? Like I mean, it's everyone... a, it's up there. I I would I would qualify it. It's a classic for. Okay. It's it's in the dad movie genre, I'd say, because it, it's a movie oh, about okay. men being awesome men. Um, <laughs> yeah. As William Goldman. <laughs> Boomers, we did it. <laughs> yeah, as William Goldman famously wrote, he wrote his screenplay for it and talked about it in his memoir, and he wants he wanted it to be about men doing manly awesome things. Uh, yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, question six. So every year, the actual number of winners 
for this award varies depending on the size of the cast. So, like we mentioned, Parasite, 10 awards were handed out that night for a cast of 10. For Black Panther, it was 12 folks. Um, in 2002, Gosford Park set a record by having the num- largest number of awardees for Best Ensemble Cast. How many cast members were actually awarded for Gosford Park's award? Oh, gosh. Um, I am gonna get, I'm going to go high. I'm going to go 18. 18. Pretty dang close, John. It's 20. See, I was going to guess 19. I was like, 19? No, i got to bring it even, because, you know, Mm -hmm. I was picturing the poster, and I think the names are nice and even. Yes. (laughs) Nice and even. Uh, The names on those posters include Helen Mirren, Richard E. Grant, Maggie Smith, Clive Owen, uh, Kelly McDonald, Bob Balaban, and Ryan Phillippe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Now, John, for the opposite end of that spectrum, question seven. With only four honorees, what film had the smallest cast to win the Best Ensemble Cast Award? Well... It's gotta be Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I don't know. Um, I'm thinking like something based on a play. So maybe Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, something small, uh, closer maybe. Like, uh, um, I got it. The Flintstones. The Flintstones. <laughs> that's what did it. There you go. <laughs> you are you are close with four. You've got mm-hmm. uh, two guys and two girls, obviously. Um, but the the actual winner is Sideways. With Paul Giamatti, Virginia oh, Manson, Thomas Manson, Hayden Church, yeah. and Sandra O. Oh, that that coterie mm-hmm. of four. Yeah. Ah yes. Okay. Now, John, that very same year, another nominee had only three cast members honored, which is the smallest cast to ever receive a nomination. Not even ties for this one. Only three were honored. What film received a nomination with only three cast members? Avengers Endgame. Yeah. Because you've got Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America. That's, that's all. That's all you. Yeah. Again, erasing the, uh, James Brolin. Not James Brolin. What's his name? J- Josh Brolin. There it is. <laughs> James, yes, James Brolin. Is, James Brolin was my father. Good sir. Yeah. Um, so this was this was a year after Sideways or a year before? No, Sideways? the same year as Sideways. Oh. Ooh. So that's two thousand and four. Correct. That came out in two thousand four. Adaptation? <laughs> Nick Cage, Meryl Streep, and Chris... Uh, Chris... What? Chris, Co- Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper. Yeah. Okay, I was like, Chris... It's Chris something. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a bad guess, but it's the, the movie that would eventually win Best Picture that year, and it's Million Dollar Baby. Um, oh. Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, Clint, Clint Eastwood, Eastwood, and Hilary Swank. Hilary Swank. Yeah. Now, this is an outrage, because it, it completely erases the performances by Margot Martindale as Hilary Swank's bitch mother. <laughs> Yep, <laughs> Anthony Mackie as the uh, full of himself boxer at the gym. Remember him? No, I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, the, he wow. was, he's the okay. he's the the boxer who then beats up Jay Baruchel, playing the mentally um, handicapped uh, kid who wants to be a boxer. Remember that as well? Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. That name, that, so many big names. Exactly, wow. and they were all erased by the set. Unbelievable. Anyway, but now they've <sighs> now they've gotten their their honorifics um, by being on a podcast that nobody listens to. <laughs> <laughs> all right, two questions left, John. Okay. Question nine. In 1998, the films Titanic, Goodwill Hunting, Boogie Nights. And L.A. Confidential were all nominated for the Best Ensemble Cast Award, and they all lost this, to this film. What is it? Okay, sorry. One more time. L.A. Confidential, Boogie Nights. Goodwill Hunting, and Titanic. 
I know Titanic basically erased everything that year. <laughs> well, no, yeah, yeah, but no, like that's yeah, that's the thing. It's like I have all these ideas of what a '90s movie would be, but I don't think they're '97, so that's the problem. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Jackie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like only only a Quentin Tarantino movie could have an ensemble cast that would that would beat all those. Yes. So that's why I'm stuck on Quentin Tarantino, unfortunately. Okay. But I don't think he had a movie that came out. In... That's a, that's a good guess, but it's incorrect. It's actually the Full Monty. Oh, <laughs> just the the sexual power of <laughs> Robert Kyle mm. and Tom Wilkinson <laughs> just <laughs> completely uh, bowled over the SAG SAG what's a SAG Academy whatever whatever it is. All right. <laughs> It's fine. It's late. Question 10. All right, John, you ready? Mm-hmm. Last one. Your final challenge. All right. What film won the Best Ensemble Cast Award at the first ever Screen Actors Guild Awards? Which actor? Sorry, one more time. Uh, what film won Best Ensemble Cast at the first Film Actors Guild Awards? Okay. I'm going to guess that these weren't a thing until 1980, so therefore it had to be 9 to 5 with <laughs> such hits as Dolly Parton and uh, uh, Shuri McLean. So, okay. yes, 9 to 5. No. 9 to 5 is it. Well, no, I'll give you a hint. It's actually 1994 was the first SAG Awards. Oh. Yeah. Well, then it's got to be Forrest Gump. Okay. You sure? Final answer? Yeah. Forrest Gump came out in 94, not 92, correct? Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. All right. John. Forrest Gump. Yes. Forrest Gump. Final answer. John, if you answered correctly, I would have said <laughs> you're a true friend of Dorothy because you would have concealed the, the uh, horrible charlatan wizard behind the curtain. Uh, unfortunately, you didn't. It's a trick question. There were no Best Ensemble Cast Award at the first ever SAG Awards. <laughs> see, that's... See, like, how was I supposed... How, how many SAG Awards have there been? I'm so confused. So, literally, the 94, that year, was the first, very first one. Okay. So, the awards only go back about 25, 26 years now. And at okay. the first one honoring films from 1994 they didn't have this award 95 was the first one and apollo 13 won it so okay yeah well i was i had tom hanks in there so i, I deserve some credit just, and uh, no you should have looked at the phrasing of the question you should have known i was up to something that's that's your fault that's your problem instead you're stuck no. in oz you're never gonna get home <laughs> just, you know what oz is a beautiful place okay those munchkins are great they love us they're great. surrounded by death at every corner no thank you <laughs> Those flying rodents. Yeah, <laughs> those evil trees. <laughs> Everything's terrible in Oz. I know. Surrounded by d- d- dumb scarecrows and lions who are no help at all. <laughs> That's something they haven't. Uh, they haven't like uh, tried to. There's no. There's no current uh, uh, Wizard of Oz thing in development right oh, now. Oh yeah, there is. So good on Hollywood. No, there is. Oh, there yeah. is. There is. Yeah. Oh god. <laughs> Who's behind it? Disney. Uh, Warner Brothers. No, Disney's taking a break. I think it's Warner Brothers. Yeah, because it's public domain and it's a familiar story. So obviously. Like, hey, something familiar that we don't have to pay for? Great. (laughs) Fast track it. (laughs) There's always something based on King Arthur in development. There's always something on Peter Pan in development. There's always something Pinocchio-related going on. So, yeah. Wait, also, okay, Life is Beautiful guy, he did his Pinocchio movie. Yes. And that got nominated, didn't it? Uh, For Razzies, maybe. Um. (laughs) uh, No, I think it got nominated for something. You mean for, for an American award? Is that what you mean? Or yes. Okay. And I think I think the surprise was yes, given its quality, like you wouldn't expect it to get nominated by anything, but also just the fact that it came out. Well, yeah. 
the fact that it would, was even released on American Shores is uh, pretty extraordinary. Okay, I, yeah. I, now we're going to go down I'll, this I'll rabbit hole. Instead of, yeah. <laughs> yes, you look it up. <laughs> All right. And instead of, of wasting more people's precious times, I'll tell them, hey, like us on social media <laughs> and follow us on Twitter <laughs> and on Instagram. Um, that's where that's where our social media channels where you get a little extra content um, outside of each episode. And uh, hey, whatever service you're listening to this on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Overcast, um, I don't know, any kind of cast you want. Um, <laughs> Broadcast, broadcast news. If you're hearing this over broadcast news, um, we're saddened by our untimely death. But um, <laughs> but we hope that you subscribe to us there as well. Uh. Uh, okay, best achievement in costume design and best achievement in makeup and hairstyling. Hmm. Wow. What yep, what year was two that? Two Academy Award nominations. Yeah, what year was that? Uh, that was that's this year. So it got nominated this year, even though that came out in 2019. Wait, 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 wait. Th- but that's not. Wait, oh, that is Roberto Benigni's Pinocchio remake. What? Yes. So they got to he got to do it again? And it's wait, 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 wait. And it's co produced by Matteo Garoni, who yes. is a a damn fine director. <laughs> um wow. Wait, he direct wow, okay. Um this is this is a shock. This is a downright I'm I'm flabbergasted. I'm I'm having heart palpitations. John, you're gonna have to tell them what we're watching next week. <laughs> okay. Um Well Greg <sighs> I think because you know we sadly don't we you know we need to get away from white directors. I'm tired of white directors. Okay, so I'm tired of white people too. Get them get them the hell yeah. out of here. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we're gonna be uh, revisiting a Wong Kar Wai film. We're gonna be revisiting the Chungking Express, or is it just Chungking Express? Drop just Chungking. Drop the the is cleaner. Yes, it is indeed cleaner. <laughs> yes. um, this is our first uh, Wong Kar Wai movie in a couple of years. We did it in the mood for love, and we're big admirers. Let's let's go back to his his first big hit. This is the one that uh, launched his career both in Hong Kong and on American shores. So this will be an interesting revisit. We'll get to see Tony Lun again. So which is always a treat. Yeah. Which is always a delight. Yeah, absolutely. It's wunderbar. It's why did I say German there? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> guys, it's late. We've been here a while. Uh, we've, we'll hopefully finish Justice League sometime next year, and um, and but I also don't want to overpromise and and underdeliver. Because um, if there's one thing we do consistently do, it's underdeliver. Um, this is now a DC podcast, guys. <laughs> we used to talk about classic movies. No, now we're all talking about is DC schlock. So I thought we were becoming the Disney Plus podcast. We still got to catch up on uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which I hear is Marvel's latest triumph in the realm of television. <laughs> I already have the Fast and Furious series. I don't need. I don't need a <laughs> what another movie about family. <laughs> another. Oh, these two hate each other. They'll never get along. <laughs> He's a Falcon. He's a Winter Soldier. <laughs> They couldn't be more different. God, I, I I forget what podcast I was listening to, but they were playing, or at least reminiscing about old uh, trailers uh, narrated by the inimitable, uh, venerable Don LaFontaine. And God, mm-hmm. what I wouldn't hear, kill to hear, hear him narrate on, on these uh, overly bombastic movies and TV shows. <laughs> Batman needs, needs a team. <laughs> Spider-Man finds himself far from home. Yeah. <laughs> Marvel Studios presents yeah. Aquaman is the brawn. <laughs> Wonder Woman the brains. <laughs> and Flash, he's just here for the ride. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh man, we'll come back with that fire next week. Um, but until there you go. we'll we'll come back with our top ten Don Lafontaine uh, parody trailers. <laughs> but uh, until then, thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring. In a world of darkness, in a time of chaos, the only hope to save a city is a hero who flies in the face of evil. 1992 is the year of the bird man. That's what I'm talking about.